Blog Talk Radio. Yeah, I do. I do. It gives him integrity, you know. 
it turns out the electoral element to which Webb apparently hoped to be the antidote uh, appears to have been the death knell for his campaign. Uh, he has he has had trouble raising enough money to pose a threat, a legitimate threat to either Clinton or Sanders. A recent filing reported by Politico uh, revealed that Jim Webb has raised only $696,972.18, <laughs> whereas he and had, and had uh, $316,765.34 cash on hand. With a contrast with uh, with the twenty nine million nine hundred twenty nine dollars and six no nine hundred twenty nine thousand six hundred and fifty three dollars yeah. and ninety one cents raised, raised by, by Clinton, Clinton <laughs> or, or the twenty six million two hundred sixteen thousand four hundred and thirty eight four hundred and thirty dollars and thirty eight cents. I mean, what a what a what a, what a what a cash register that is to run yeah. for, you know, unbelievable, just unbelievable. Well, and since you know, they're de- they're de- he's declared yeah. he's subject to campaign financing. Yeah. As opposed to laws, as opposed to Joe Biden, yeah. who raised money and huh. then didn't declare, where's that money going? It's his pocket. He goes in his pocket, Dave. That's where it goes. So he, I'm glad he didn't. He decided not to run because it was way too hypocritical for him to, you know what I mean? He would run on the sorrow ticket. You know what I mean? Yeah, it was really, really too much. Was, yeah, he had some integrity by not running. Now, here's somebody that really surprised me. Robert Redford <laughs> had the same problem I had when I when I first saw Carly Carina. Well, what said, did he say? She's a real horror. She's really a horror. <laughs> Let's read that. Actor Robert Redford has found himself in yet another political gaffe. This time about Republican presidential candidate Carly Farina. During an interview with up with Uprox for his Dan Rather CBS drama Truth, Redford and his co-star Kate Blanchett went from discussing the famous take story from the George W. Bush John Kerry 2004 election, which their film dramatizes, to the current political theater. The interviewer suggested that Rather's story about Bush's sugarcoating his service in the National Guard wouldn't make as much of a splash in today's news cycle. Redford wholeheartedly disagreed. Jeb Bush's stuff happens, quote, after a mass tragedy. Judge Bush's stuff happens, quote, after a mass tragedy. Trump says whatever he wants. It doesn't seem to matter what anyone says or does now said writer Mike Ryan. Bush is getting nailed on that, Redford responded before adding. What I think is interesting, what's beginning to happen out of the box, Trump, Trump, Trump. And out of the box, Bush is going to be the top guy. Now Bush is going down and somebody's coming up. Here's Carly Farina, who is really a horror. (laughs) Wait, what? She's a horror? Please do explain your point, Mr. Redford. I'm trying to get support for Sundance from HP, and she came, so I had some dealings with her at the time and drew an impression, but she's become even more extreme in the last few years, and now it's getting revealed. There's an article today that really takes apart what she's saying and what she's doing and what she claims, and it's undoing all of it, and so I think you're beginning to see the unraveling. Redford never explained why his dealings with Farina revealed her more horrific character, Nor did he mention the article in question, but it was probably the Washington Post piece that sparked a fact-checking war with Farina and the media at large. This isn't the first time Redford's words have inadvertently sparked a reaction in the 2016 election cycle. In September, the Donald Trump campaign cherry-picked Redford's comments on the New York real estate mogul in order to make it look like an endorsement. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's cool. But anyway, so so that that's what's going on there. Uh, Redford thought she was crazy, too. A real horror. I did, too. After I saw that, that uh, debate, if you call it the debate, you know, and her rant on, on Planned Parenthood and her rant on... on uh, everything else. I mean, she was just one. I just want to squeeze in a 
Mommy, mommy dearest. I want to squeeze in a little something here from the AFL-CIO oh, sure. blog now. Yeah, sure. Catching fire for fair pay, winners and losers. In our regular weeks we feature, we take a look at the winners and losers of the week and the struggle for rights of working families. The winners will be persons or organizations that go above and beyond to expand or protect the rights of working families. While the losers will be whoever went above and beyond to limit or deny those rights. The winner, Jennifer Lawrence, after the actress stood up against the massive payback, pay gap between actors and actresses in Hollywood. Kudos to her Silver Linings Playbook. Co-star Bradley Cooper for supporting her and calling for an end to the practice. The runner-up, Chef Abram Bissell, for pushing restauranteur Danny Meyer, who owns the Martin, where Bissell works, to raise wages. And the owner responded by eliminating tips and raising wages so the staff will earn more than $15 per hour. Losers, Forever 21, it's a a clothing chain, and other California retailers who have been hit with a lawsuit allegedly exploitive scheduling practice and attempts to get around state laws. Runner-up, Giovanni D'Ambusco, owner of Resuvio's Pizza and Grill in North Carolina, (laughs) after he called the police to report the undocumented immigration status of a former employee who filed a wage theft complaint against him. Oh, jeez. What a a schmuck. Mm -hmm. What a, what a, Mr., what's his name? What was his name? Giovanni D'Ambusco. Yeah. Owner of Vesuvio's Pizza and Grill in North Carolina. Hey, Vesuvio's Pizza and Grill in North Carolina. You're, you're, you're a racist idiot mm, joke. Come on. Come on. Give, what's his name? Stealing, stealing some poor guys. What was his name? He was he was making this poor guy a slave. Yeah. This poor, Doesn't poor say illegal who the guy immigrant was. was it a slave. God. Yeah, he stole his money. To make a freaking pizza, you fat freaking pizzeria mother jubber. Pizza eater. Pizza eating mother jubber maker. Now that's yeah. really unbelievable. Yeah, I would boycott. Where, where's this guy? North, North Carolina. Carolina boycott his restaurant. Yeah, what's his name again? Giovanni D'Ambusco. What's the name of the restaurant? Vesuvio's Pizza and Grill. Vesuvio's Pizza and Grill. Hey, throw a throw 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 a throw a a Twitter at him. You know, Twitter's Mario's Pizza and Grill, right? No, Vesuvio. Vesuvio's Pizza and Grill in North Carolina at Yahoo.com or something. Just send it to him. Tell him he's a jerk. Oh, here's another jerk. Oh, I was so glad to see this jerk become a jerk. Uh, let everybody know. Oh, I think that every, guy. Everybody knew he was a jerk. Lindsey Graham calls out GOPers who deny the science on climate change. Oh, Lindsey Graham. Was, was he a friend of Al Gore? Is that I it? I have no idea what he's doing with this. That's why I, that's why I brought it up. Because Lindsey Graham is such a such a phony, baloney idiot. He didn't even he didn't even get one percent of the vote. I mean, in the, in the, in, he's a professional runner for president. Yeah, yeah, but he, no, along he, with he, Lincoln no, Chafee. No, he, he's never ran before. He oh just, yeah, he's always one of those guys that jumps in the race. Really? And he's always kicked up. I didn't know. Nobody no, wants the guy. Yeah, he is. You know, he's like Lincoln Chafee who always jumps in the front of oh, the president. Oh, for the Republican guys. Yeah, he's you know. Oh well, when when they're professional, when, you know. Yeah, but when Donald Trump gave everybody his cell phone number. It was and 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 he went he went apoplectic. I thought that, that was, was so that was funny. very cool. He he lost it all. He lost his mind. Well, well anyway. I think the best one <laughs> was Rick Perry and the glass. Oh, that was great because he dropped out the next day after that. Wouldn't you? Oh boy. I mean, he that was so perfect because it was it such was a so humiliation. Yeah. It really was. Awesome. And then he got then he got Walker. He got he kicked Walker in the in the in the jewels, and Walker dropped out. Uh-huh. And then, and then he, he's been trying to go after Jeb Bush, but Jeb Bush, you know, you got a, he's got a steel cup there, so it's, he, he can't do anything right now. He's got a hundred million bucks behind him. Yeah. And the Bush family. He spoke of business-friendly solutions to the problem. Uh, let's go. Ahead. Lindsey Graham today called out fellow Republicans to, who deny the science on climate change. 
Well, Graham was one of the several candidates who spoke at the No Labels Conference in New Hampshire today, and he made it clear he just doesn't get Republican resistance to climate change. He spoke of business-friendly solutions to the problem and said, to my friends on the left, <laughs> he has friends on the left who are making this a religion, you're making a mistake. To my friends on the right who deny the science, tell me why. Earlier this year, Graham said he had no idea what the GOP's environmental platform is and what Republicans should stop arguing with the science. <laughs> Let, let's listen to this for a second see what he said. He's such a lunatic. Yeah. But he's, he's John McCain's best buddy, too. I do, too. That's So, trade-off. For those of you who believe climate change is real, you're going to have to deal with a guy like me who will push a lower-carbon economy over time in a business-friendly way. The great trade-off is energy producers and environmentalists in a room trying to find, over a 50-year period, a way to go to a lower-carbon economy in the meantime, responsibly exploring for fossil fuels that we own, and trying to create alternative energy in every sector of the economy. It is, to me, folks, a problem needs to be solved, not a religion. To to my friends on the left who are making this a religion, you're making a mistake. To my friends on the right who deny the science, tell me why. I'm not a scientist. I made a D in science. You know why? Because she'd never given an F. So... But I've been to the Antarctic. I've been to Greenland. I've been to Alaska, and I've heard from people who live in these regions how the climate is changing. And when 90% of climatologists tell you it's real, who am I to tell them they don't know what they're talking about? So the, uh, the trade-off is Joe Lieberman, John Kerry, and Lindsey Graham got close, and we had the oil spill in the Gulf. More nuclear power because it's a good job creating a method of energy, if not admitting, exploring for oil and gas in a reasonable way. Well, there he was. Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah the, the great fool, oh, Lindsey Graham. That's why he's not, he's not even there. Thirteen fifty. 
$1,000 per unit. The drug is used largely to combat life-threatening infections in people with HIV. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that was kind of interesting. I just thought it was hmm. interesting that he had the integrity to, to, to get, do that, to do that yeah. which I, I'm grateful to him for. So he has somebody watching what money he takes and yeah, he's giving you know, it. You know, I, I think this is Russian diplomats tweet pictures of terrorists going around. <laughs> Oh yeah, this. I mean, maybe this is tonight is our union night, and we usually say things. That, but um, you know, when when things come up, we try to we try to include them. Wait a second. Oh, that's true. Right, and Lila just left for a second. She has to answer the phone. But this is kind of interesting because this really, really kind of bothered me when I read this. Uh, you know, really bothered me. Because one of the biggest problems I have with the Palestinian issue, you know, if you've read my website, listen to my programs, all right, well, Netanyahu says that Palestinian nationalists are more responsible for Holocaust than Hitler. Well, what is this guy? Because on Tuesday, Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu um, considered the possibility that a Palestinian nationalist and not German Nazi party leader Adolf Hitler was responsible for the Holocaust. He blamed the Holocaust on Palestinians, this freaking idiot. And Netanyahu made the comment in his address to the World Zionist Conference in Jerusalem. According to the Times of Israel, he said that Mohammed Afandi Amin al Husani, a Palestinian nationalist who was Grand Mufta, Mufti of Jerusalem from 1929 to 1937, convinced Hitler to change his mind about expelling the Jews from Europe when the former complained that they would all come to Jerusalem. The two had met in Berlin near the end of 1941. Well, Mohammed Afani al Husani was a, was a smart guy, you know? He didn't want Hitler coming into Palestine and you know, the Jews coming in and taking over. That was his country. He wanted to keep them there, in in Germany. Well, Hitler didn't want to exterminate the Jews at the time of the meeting between the the Mufti and the Nazi leader. He wanted to expel the Jews. And Netanyahu said, and Aman Jahanas Husani went to Hitler and said, if you don't expel them, they'll all come here to mandatory Palestine, uh, continued the prime minister. So what should I do with them? Be Hitler asked, be he, Hitler asked, according to Netanyahu, and he, Usani said, burn them. I made up. Yeah, right. Well, you know, Netanyahu is a used car salesman, man. He'll sell anything. Yeah, he was a used car salesman, you know, in America mm-hmm. before he became prime minister over there. Well, needless to say, many Holocaust historians were not happy with the prime minister's revisionist history. Israeli historian Tom Segev told the paper that the uh, idea was entirely absurd and that Husseini never convinced Hitler to exterminate the Jews instead of expelling them. And one can surely say that Husseini was a war criminal, said the historian, but one cannot say Hitler needed his advice. (laughs) In addition... Netanyahu's detractors pointed out that Hitler had discussed his genocidal notions as early as 1939, years before the start of World War II and Nazi's final solution. Check out the clip via YouTube, which is from oh Doctor. Oh, here's one. We can check this out. Jane, go down. Go down. Go down. Go right here. What? Oh, I guess James Woods doesn't care for Bernie Sanders. He says, I don't more, more on trying to tweet, whatever. But I let, let, let's just hear Netanyahu here. It's only a minute. What do you think? And I don't, like to, get, I don't like to give any air attacks. Other attacks on the Jewish people in 1929 were uh, instigated by a call of the Mufti of Jerusalem, Hajamin al Husseini, who was later. Uh, sought for war crimes in the Nuremberg trials because he had a central role uh, in fomenting the uh, final solution. He flew to Berlin. Uh, Hitler didn't want to uh, 
exterminate the Jews at the time. He wanted to expel the Jews. And Khajamim al-Husseini went to Hitler and said, if you expel them, they'll all come here. So what should I do with them? Yes. He said, burn them. And he was sought in the, uh, during the Nuremberg trials for prosecution. He escaped it. Later died in cancer after the war. Died of cancer in Cairo. But this is what Haj Amin al-Husseini said. He said, the Jews seek to destroy the Temple Mount. My grandfather in 1920 seeks to destroy the, sorry, the Al-Aqsa Mosque. So this lie is about 100 years old. Just so you realize that Netanyahu's lies are present, current, and go back uh, as far as 1948 when the, you know, when the Infantata happened and they destroyed and, and killed seven uh, and, and threw out 750,000 um, um, residents from their own country. Palestinians, yeah. So Netanyahu, you're a piece of work. Get off our life. Get out of this world. Donald Trump would absolutely close down mosques in order to fight ISIS. What do you think of that? I don't know what to think. Where is he going to do this? Well, let's see. uh, Donald Trump said, in an interview with Fox News, Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump said he would absolutely revoke passports and close mosques in order to fight ISIS. Host Stuart Varney uh, asked about a series of anti-ISIS measures that British government uh, has taken. taken. They've got a whole new series of proposals to deal with this, including withdrawal of passports from some of these people who've gone over just to fight. Absolutely. Good, good, Trump said. In closing Samas, he continued, would you do the same thing in America? I would do that, Trump responded. Absolutely, I think it's great. Let's see, can you do it, Press Varney? Can you close a mosque? Do we have religious freedom? Well, I don't know, Trump admitted. I mean, I haven't heard about the closing of a mosque. It depends if the mosque is, you know, loaded for bear. I don't know. You're going to have to certainly look at it. Okay, so let's look at, let's listen to his quick little speech here. Donald Trump. Closing a mosque. Hello. Uh, How's the college? Had to throw it. Uh, yeah, I'm afraid so. It's okay. This is what we've been planning for. Hang on one second. And we shall be out of this stupid thing. They don't let you X out, huh? No. No. Expect you to listen to this, or not. I'm muting it. Hang on one second. Here it is. Trump it, it, on it, Secret it, Service. Okay. Let me just get, if I can get the sound up. Sound. Yeah. Thoughts from some of these people who've gone. Absolutely good. Good. And closing some mosques. Would you do this? Yeah, let's start this over. Here we go. It's now Trump talking to Fox Business. With a British accent. You have to go back to where it was. Where it was. Well, I don't know. I mean, I haven't heard about the closing of the mosque. It depends. If the mosque is, you know, loaded for bear, I don't know. You're going to have to certainly look at it. But I can tell you one thing. If somebody goes over and they want to fight for ISIS, they wouldn't be coming back. And in this country, you know, that's been proposed for two years now. And as usual, our our politicians can't get together on it. But it's not the politicians. It's President Obama primarily, isn't it? Well, it's, it's everyone. Well, he's a politician. Uh, it's, it's every steward. It's everybody. It's everybody. So, I mean, it's not a very dramatic response to homegrown terror. It doesn't seem to be. Why not? 
Well, I think it's incredible that somebody can come from this country or from England or wherever you may have it and go out and fight for ISIS and then come back into our country. Yeah. If they yeah, want to fight for ISIS, I think that's yeah. fine. They're not coming back into our country if I become president. That's okay. The various issues have been raised in this campaign. I wonder if I could go through them real fast and get your response to some of the proposals, often from the Democrat side, uh, that have been made in this campaign. I'm going to start with a fast response, if you would. Paid family leave. Well, it's something that's being discussed. I think we have to keep our country very competitive, so you have to be careful of it. But certainly there are a lot of people discussing it. $15 an hour minimum wage. It, we have to keep our similar answer. You have to keep our country competitive. One of the reasons com companies are leaving is because salaries are too high. You look at what's going on in Vietnam and in China and so many different places. So we have to be very, very careful with that. That sounds so easy, but we have to be very, very competitive or we're going to lose all of our jobs in this country. Well, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a big fan because I want to, I want to be competitive with other countries, and that's what we're competing against, and that's what we're losing to. Okay. Henry Clinton proposes free pre-K for all. Well, I don't like it because eventually you're going to have to raise everybody's taxes. So that's a big There is no, no such thing, well. Stuart, there is no such thing as free. You're going to have to raise taxes. You do that, you're going to have to raise taxes. With that being said, we're going to be coming out with a plan on education, which is going to lower costs and make it really good. But that is a – it's very, very hard, very easy to do, very, very easy to do. And you know what's going to happen? We already have tremendous deficits. You're going to have to raise everybody's taxes higher. We're already the number one taxed country in the world. We have to be very careful. Now, would you do a, a Bush 41 and say, read my lips? No new taxes. Would you do that? Well, I could do that. I'm not going to do it on your show, but I could do that, and I could certainly think about doing that because my taxes, and under my plan, as you know, I'm reducing taxes, I think, more than any other candidate by far. So I could, I could certainly uh, – that's where my mindset is, uh, not just keeping – you know, no new taxes. I'm substantially lowering taxes. I'm bringing the corporate tax down to 15. I'm bringing taxes down to, a, to the lowest point that they've been in years. And what's going to happen is the economy is going to take off. How about this one? Uh, Hillary Clinton and the president say, do not build the Keystone Pipeline. And you know, I would, I would let the Keystone Pipeline be built, absolutely. Apple, it's the, the computer company, it's got $183 billion stashed away overseas. What measures would you take to bring some of that money or all of that money back home to America? Well, it's called corporate inversion. It's such a simple problem. We have billions and trillions, actually, at least $2.5 trillion overseas. Companies can't get it in. And the amazing thing about this one is everybody, Republican and Democrat, want the money to come back, and they can't even agree on that. So here everybody agrees the money should come back. We should have the money in our country so we can rebuild different things and, you know, have lots of fun with our infrastructure and everything else, which is falling apart and desperately needed. And even that's Stuart, we can't get back in. So here's a point that everybody wants. Everybody agrees the money should come back in. They can't even agree on that. Break up the big banks. Now, you do business with the biggest of big banks here in New York City and around the world. A lot of people on the left want to just break them up. What say you? But I disagree, but I also think we have to get rid of Dodd-Frank. The banks aren't loaning money to people that need it. The banks will give me all the money I need because I don't need the money. Anybody that doesn't need money is a great candidate to get money. If you need money to create jobs, to build something, whether it's buildings or a company, the banks aren't there. The regulators are running the banks, and that's why our country, I mean, people can't borrow money today. You got I wish I had more of that interview. He talks about some right things and some wrong things. And um, having been in real estate for almost 20 years, I, I know what he's talking about. And you can't buy property without banks, you know. And you can't. Bank but I don't, the I don't. But but what I'm what I'm trying to say, if people will go to my website right away, you'll, you'll see. The problem I have with the economy and ending the Fed uh, as one of my priorities, and, and and my own run for president as an independent. Let's uh, talk about candidate. Trump. Let's get back to that. But we need a, we need public banking, and we have to get out of this of this 
he, he obviously, Leo, all right. Program. He obviously subscribes to the tri- trickle down thing. Of course he does. Because he's, he's at the top, and he, the top. and he wants to the, how he's going to attract yeah, exactly. is by paying people exactly. uh, four dollars an hour. Okay, and then he just gets richer, and the poor get poorer. That's right. Uh, so right. I can't, I can't go along with him. Uh, I he he has got, got a lot of problems with Trump. I really yeah. A lot. He's a one percenter. Yeah. Oh yeah, he does say a lot of stuff I like, but in the end, his platform is going to benefit him yeah. and people like him. Yeah. Well, here's proof that the uh, Republicans are out of their freaking mind. And well, we says, do that. GOP senator seriously wants Dick Cheney for Speaker of the House. Oh my God, who's can this you, guy? Can you imagine that? Arkansas Republican Senator Tom Cotton told Politico that he wants former Dick. Uh, Vice President Dick Cheney to be the Speaker of the House. Hmm? He said, look, these are trying times for our nation, Cotton said. It's important to have a steady hand on the helm during times like this. I think experience really counts in a matter like this. I think House leadership experience really matters. And as you know, the Speaker doesn't have to be a member of the House. And this is a jerkwater Cheney. Dick Cheney, this idiot, wants as the Speaker of the House. Well, Politico, Burgess Everett asked Cotton if he was serious. He's a man of the house. He says with that he says that himself. Cotton responded, and Cheney served in the house for eleven years and served briefly as House Minority Whip. Okay, but come on, folks, really be serious. Dick Cheney, a Speaker of the House. I mean, Boehner was just as bad, but I mean, Cheney would be just ultimately horrible. Can you imagine that? Oh, you got uh, uh, Well, again, well, it's, it's yeah. union night, but when we got a lot of stuff. Well, it's good to hear what different candidates are I think saying. It's important. I, think it's, I, I think being Trump and Bernie Sanders and Hillary, these are the three people that are, that are, that are seem to be getting. And, and the most course, traction. And yeah. we just played the web thing at the beginning because he just dropped out of the Democratic Party. And is going. He's going to be going independent. We're going to be supporting him very much so, and in, in the coming uh, election, and we'll maybe, see. We might even have him on it. We might even get him on it to on the show. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm going to try that. You know, what do you think? Well, I'll see what he has to what say first. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, one, we'll not, do it on Wednesday night. I'm not sure you know, how you know, I feel about him. Wouldn't it be good if we had if we had Larry on that night too? He could yeah, talk maybe. To yeah. yeah, yeah, and, and probe because. Larry, uh, Jim Webb said that he was—he actually was friends with uh, with Trump, and they—they they be, they became friends in 1989, hmm. and uh, supported each other. And, you know, it was pretty nice of him. So, you know, let, let's see what he. Maybe we'll have more to say about Jim Webb. Uh, he sounds here, pretty good, but yeah. I always get disappointed in these candidates. Oh, I know we do every year. But yeah, watch this. Now watch this. Fight breaks out at Trump rally between supporters and protesters. Yeah. Said Donald Trump was heckled at a Virginia rally tonight. Uh, this was uh, printed on the 14th, okay, the 14th of October. Uh, Don and uh, let's see, uh, media, mediaite. So about a week ago. It says Donald Trump was heckled by a Virginia rally tonight, and some of his supporters ended up getting in a physical altercation with protesters. The protesters began to speak up when Donald Trump talked about immigration. His supporters cheered to drown them out while Trump said it's their First Amendment right, while still predicting the dishonest media would run headlines about the hecklers instead of all the thousands of people who didn't heckle him, which no since which no since when has not heckling become uh, someone bad news. But in CNN reports, reported tonight, yeah, uh, before the protesters were removed from the room, things got physical between the roughly dozen protesters and a few of Trump's supporters. At one point, Sarah Murray reported a Trump supporter spat in the face of a protester. Oh. Oh, Let's see what we've got here. Let's see if we can can get this video up. What is with people? 
Yeah, and he had the crowd roaring, talking about how he was going to build a wall along the border with Mexico. And that's when things got tense. There were a group of about a dozen or so protesters who started chanting. And Donald Trump, to his credit, just kind of said, it's okay, it's okay, this is why we have, you know, a right to free speech. But it was actually his supporters in the crowd and the protesters who then clashed. At one point, things turned physical. At another point, there was actually a Trump supporter who spit in the face of one of the protesters. Now, as of course you know, of course our viewers know, protests happen at political events. This is not abnormal. I think what was abnormal was the level of aggression, the level of vitriol we saw between the people who were in the crowd here tonight. There we go. Now, I know I know, we got all kinds of issues here, but I wanted to hear this thing, and I think because it's very important, because Donald Trump stated that 911 comments, Bush did know it was coming and could, didn't do a damn thing about it. They wanted it to happen. Mm-hmm. They wanted it to happen. And Donald Trump is smart enough and strong enough and bold enough to, to make it make it so. Make, make them understand and make make them bring it to reality and what, what really did happen and how Bush was responsible for it. Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump said on CNN Newsday that he wouldn't be apologizing for blaming George W. Bush for the 911 attacks, saying he had advance notice that it was coming, and he did. Look, his brother gets hit on. He's a loyal person. He's loyal to his brother. Well, Trump said of fellow GOP contender Jeb Bush, but his brother made some mistakes. His brother could have been, could have, could have made a mistake with the actual hit. He continued. He did not know it was coming. Uh, George Tennant, the head of the CIA, told him it was coming. So they did have advance notice. And Trump went out of his way to say he wasn't blaming Bush. They said that our country was safe under Bush. Well, what about the World Trade Center coming down and the worst attack in history? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let me see if I can get this, this statement that he made right here. It's, uh, it's an audio piece here. I've always gotten a great deal of pleasure in helping people. His brother gets hit on. He's a loyal person. He's loyal to his brother. But his brother made some mistakes. His brother could have made a mistake with respect to the actual hit because they did know it was coming. And George Tenet, the head of the CIA, told them that it was coming. So they did have advance notice, and they didn't really work on it. Now, that's something that could happen. I don't blame him for that. Again, the question was, it wasn't that I was blaming. They said that our country was safe under Bush. I said, well, what about the World Trade Center coming down and the worst attack in history? But the statement was, our country was safe under his brother. And I said, well... Okay, but you got to add in, you know, if you go back a few days, you have to add in a thing called the World Trade Center, right. and they wouldn't do that. Okay. So, you know, so I, I disagreed with that statement. Yeah. And, and there you go. So that, that's uh, Donald Trump stating, he, uh, you know, 911 was uh, questionable, you know, and, uh, and that the, 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 Bush, the Bush administration knew it was coming all along. And uh, did nothing to stop it. Except whisk the Saudis back to Saudi Arabia. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. On a private jet. Sure. But they did. Um, here's something that I thought was interesting. Limbaugh, Rush Limbaugh, who makes me laugh all the time, but maybe Biden was going to run, but dark forces of Hillary intervened. I think that's very true. I like to hear this because I'm not I'm not a big fan of Limbaugh, but. He makes me laugh a lot, and I do appreciate his commentary. Makes me uh, feel more uh, obliged as for freedom of speech that we speak. You know what I mean, Lila? Don't you think so? So you like his humor? I love his humor. Rush Limbaugh is a genius. Rush Limbaugh suspects that Joe Biden's announcement speech today was going to be about getting into the 2016 race but then someone stepped in to tell him no. Well, based on how strongly Biden laid how his vision for America today, Limbaugh said Biden might have been ready to run, but then he was informed that he is not happy, that it's not happening, 
and all he'll get is a White House lawn address to say a few things. And who was behind it? Well, Limbaugh wondered aloud, was this the dark forces of Hillary Clinton working their way into the White House? <laughs> I don't know if I can get this piece up or not. Just listen. Maybe I can. Daily Rush Bowl, let's see. Yeah, Uh, let's listen to that. Yeah, that's, I, and there's something strange here, folks, with this Biden speech. And I, I'm not trying to generate a bunch of conspiracy thinking here. It's just it's a speech given by somebody that's going to run. I there's, there's part of me that thinks that he was going to and whatever, whoever uh, said, no, Joe, you're not. Uh, you can give the speech. Probably be your last big speech, Joe. I mean, you are the vape, after all. Go ahead. Use the Rose Garden. Make your points, but you're not running. Remember who we're dealing with here. I mean, even Mark Knoller, the White House correspondent for CBS, and then they all are. They're all tweeting things such as Biden's speech could easily have been used for launching a presidential campaign. Believe me, it was that type of speech. Except he said he's not. There is more to this than meets the eye. Not that it matters to anything other than, was this the dark forces of Hillary Clinton working their way into the Obama White House and saying, he better not run. If he runs, you fill in the blank. We may never know. <laughs> I love Russell Limbaugh for those reasons. And I, and I I tell you I I don't I'm not a conservative in that way but you know you don't particularly he, care for Hillary Clinton and but 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 you know he's right on about Hillary right on about Biden right on about so many people and and he, he's right on that's why he's lasted as long as he has yeah uh, you know and and he's a major commentary a lot of respect to Rush for for that uh, even though we are liberals. Yeah, we are. In our leaning, we 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 respect Rush for his. I appreciate uh, his for his genius. Yeah, yeah, do. I do. I, I have to say that. Yeah. yeah, you do too, right? Yeah, that sometimes I think he's a, very funny. He's a genius, you know. And However, I don't agree with where he finally leads people. No, but he catches you with humor. <laughs> but he always makes me laugh. Every I day, do laugh you know, for all those many years, for ten, fifteen years, we've laughed at Rush Limbaugh. And, and we've, we've, we've got a great sense of humor. We've, we've got, we we, we laughed at him with feminazis, and we laughed at him with, with so many things that he said. And uh, he's been right on for so many issues. But, you know, I'm sorry. I, I got we got issues with conservative uh, viewpoints. Uh, but, you know, we can still have a conversation. <laughs> and, and well, you can appreciate and I, and I think we can still laugh at each other. You can too. still appreciate yeah. someone's humor. Oh, yeah. I, mean, he's oh, yeah. He's, I think he's a very smart guy. He's a brilliant guy. No, no question he, about he, that. He I don't like where he takes people. No, I don't way. No, no, he takes them down the wrong path, but, they're, but he's mm. fun. Yeah, and I think most people catch on to him now. You know, they, they, oh, I think I, so. I think so, but they still listen to him because he's a lot of fun to listen to. I listen to him uh, regular, regularly, but here's here's something that kind of surprised me. Oh, by the way, uh, yeah, I was I was happy to hear about this. I don't know where it's going to lead Canada, but they got a new prime minister. No, and that's been all over the media. Oh, I know, but I was just kind of Justin Trudeau. Yeah. Well, will Canada's new prime minister turn his campaign promises into climate he's action? He's liberal. Yeah, I know he's liberal. His father was uh, was a master. Pierre. Yeah, Pierre Trudeau. And uh but just so you know the Canadians voted the country's Liberal Party into power Monday. Okay, after they had the Conservative Party last time with oh, Harper. For many and, years yeah. I think. And they were and they were trying to do the the the, uh, the union, you know, the 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 uh, American Union, national you know, the national thing and go into the Amero and you know, you remember all that shit? That that was happening there uh, a few years back with the Harper administration. Mm. Well, Canadians voted. They they said they had enough with that guy, and they voted uh, Trudeau's son into the power. 
and uh, spelled the end of conservative Stephen Harper's nine-year run in the role. Good, I'm yeah. glad they got rid of him. Harper's now head up the co- country's official opposition as his party came in second place ahead of Tom Mukler, New Democratic Party. That's pretty bizarre. I don't know. Well, Harper's policies had turned him into something of a villain in climate and environmental circus. His government staunchly supported the tar sands industry, and he long back the construction of Keystone XL and tar sands pipeline. His administration's uh, treatment of scientists, the Conservative Party's 2007 rules on environmental Canada, scientists' media interactions ended up reducing scientists' discussions with the media on climate change by 80%. Wow, can you imagine that? Uh-uh. Yeah, he was. He stopped scientific scientist discussion on on this issue. Harper by eighty percent. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, and was condemned as muzzling, and led some environment uh, Canada Canada scientists to pen an anti-Harper folk song. Sample lyrics: Well, you, well, who reveres Uncle Sam? Says our future lies in oil sands. That's what that was part of their lyric. But now, with the Trudeau make, taking over the reins as Prime Minister, many are hopeful that Canada's environmental path will shift. There are still a lot of unknowns about exactly how a Liberal government will tackle environmental issues. Aaron Flanagan, an analyst in the Penelope, the Liberal Party performs includes a tenet to create a national environmental strategy that embraces scientific evidence and accepts the reality of human-caused climate change. But liberals haven't said specifically what they're what that means in terms of emission targets, and Flanagan says, and there's still really exciting and interesting things that haven't heard in this country in a decade, but they haven't been specific. Well, so this goes on for quite some length, but it's it's important to note that there's new blood in Canada, and I think the Canadian. Liberal Party, Labor Party will probably make a major difference in Canada, don't you think? I hope so. I, I hope so. They're a wonderful country. They're a lot. We get a lot of listeners, a lot of viewers to our website from Canada. Well, they're just our neighbors to the north. And they're very interested in what we're saying. And, and we're uh, interested in what they have to say. Yeah. Well, here's something different that I thought this was interesting because uh, UN sets set to call on governments to decriminalize drug use and possession. Uh, and Sir Richard Branson, he's the guy that owns Virgin Air mm-hmm. and uh, Virgin Records and all that stuff. Very wealthy guy, billionaire guy. The United Nations is on the verge of calling for governments around the world to end the war on drugs by decriminalizing the use and possession of illicit narcotics, according to businessman Sir Richard Branson. In a surprise post, I can't see, Leo. Oh, sorry. I should have moved that up. In a surprise post on the website of his company, Virgin, the entrepreneur and drugs campaigner said the U.N. Office of Drugs and Crime is about to announce a refreshing shift in direction. Branson claimed he broke a global media embargo to make the announcement as the news was due to have been launched at a conference on Sunday. The Virgin Chief said he feared the UN would bow to political pressure and withdraw the statement at the last minute. Let's put okay. that on. In as yet released Unreleased. statement relating to the BBC, myself and others, the UN Office on Drugs and Crime, which has shaped much of global drug policy for decades, call on governments around the world to decriminalize drug use and possession. For, for personal consumption of all drugs. Wow. Did you hear that? Mm-hmm. I agree. This is a refreshing shift that could go a long way to finally end the needless criminalization of millions of drug users around the world. And the UNODC document was due to be launched at an international harm reduction conference in Malaysia yesterday. So let, let's, let's, uh, let's just listen to this. This is a Russian TV, but let's, let's, let's listen to it. 
first Afghan opium crop of the year is being planted right now, a legacy of a war that cost more than 10,000 British servicemen and women dead or wounded. No one counted the Afghans. 70,000 people a year in the UK get criminal records for drug possession, and MPs on Thursday met Mexican politicians to learn from their experience of lethal drug cartels and mass beheadings. Journalist, author, and Russell Brand's producer, Johan Harry, has just written Chasing the Scream, endorsed by, among others, Noam Chomsky, Elton John, and Stephen Fry. He joins me now. Welcome, Johan Harry, to Going Underground. We probably know it's quite likely that David Cameron's cabinet, some of them have taken drugs. Why do you think they haven't amended drug policy since the coalition came to power? There isn't a big enough movement to pressure them to do it. They're scared of the Daily Mail. Actually, intellectually, when you speak to them, not all of them, but a lot of them have... Uh, basically similar views to me. There's not a big enough movement, and we haven't persuaded people enough yet that the alternatives are not what they fear they are. There are ideas from the drug war that everyone, including me when I was growing up, even though I was growing up with, uh, with addiction in my family, just take for granted. And one of the things that most struck me, yeah, when, I, when I realized we were coming up to the centenary of the drug war, there were loads of really basic questions that I realized that I just didn't know the answer to. Like, why were drugs banned? Why did we go to war against drug users and drug addicts 100 years ago? Why do we carry on even though a lot of people think it doesn't work? What are the real alternatives? How do they work in practice? And what really causes drug use and drug addiction? And part of the problem about the whole way we debate this, I think, is we talk about it in such abstract terms as if we're all at a philosophy seminar. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to go and see how this affects real people in their real lives all over the world. One of the key figures in this book that keeps reappearing is this figure, Harry Anslinger, who you credit with actually uh, changing drug laws here in Britain, let alone the United States. Tell us about him. Harry Anslinger is the most influential person who no one's ever heard of. He's the inventor of the modern drug war. He took over the Department of Prohibition in the United States just as alcohol prohibition is ending. So he's a government bureaucrat with a big demoralized department and nothing to do. And Harry Anslinger was really a kind of genius. He was motivated by two really strong hatreds hatred of addicts and hatred of African-Americans. And he managed to fuse these together. I tell this in the book through the story of how he stalked and killed Billie Holiday, the great jazz singer. In 1939, she stands on stage in New York City and she sings the song Strange Fruit, a song against lynching. And that night, Harry Anslinger orders her, his men order her to stop singing this song. You know, the idea of a black woman singing about lynching was horrifying to him. He knew she was a heroin addict. She refused. She effectively said, screw you, I'm an American citizen, I'll do what I want. And that's when the stalking of her begins that leads to them effectively killing her. Well, and I think that tells you a huge amount about the dynamics behind the drug war. Partly that it was largely motivated then and now by race. And partly tells us what we do to addicts. She know. came to London and she said she was impressed by drugs, uh, the attitude to drugs in terms of the British criminal justice system. What, what went wrong? I mean, you well, talk about the so sixties. Yeah. So Anslinger manages to impose on, basically, Anslinger uses American diplomatic might at the end of the Second World War to force the entire world to fight the drug war the American way. Loads of countries didn't want to do it. Countries like Thailand just said, we're not doing it. And the Americans threatened to cut off the aid. Mexico refused to do it. With Britain, it's very interesting. Britain was one of the last countries to hold out, and particularly concerning heroin. British doctors, uh, the British government tried to deal with them, but British doctors, to their huge credit, said, look, heroin addicts are unwell. They need love and support and compassion, and most importantly, they need a prescription of heroin, right? So from the 1920s, when everywhere else is banning it, right up to the 90s, Britain is the absolute holdout country which uh, carried on prescribing heroin. And the results were really extraordinary. If you look at the places, I tell this through the story of an incredible doctor called Dr. John Marks in, in the Wirral in, in the north of England, who uh, rolled, who arrives in the rural in the early 1980s, discovers to his surprise they're prescribing heroin to addicts, thinks this is a bad idea until he meets the heroin addicts and realizes they're nothing like any heroin addict he's ever seen anywhere. They've got their bad jobs, they didn't have any abscesses, they didn't have any wounds. Because if you prescribe heroin to people legally, as I saw in the clinics in Switzerland where they do this, if you prescribe heroin to people legally, loads of the things that we think are the result of heroin addiction are in fact the result of criminalized heroin addiction. On the Liverpool uh, example, as you say, it had great success. And you say that an interview uh, on 60 Minutes on American TV meant that Americans were calling the British government this during the Thatcher years, maybe, or Major, saying, get rid of this doctor, get rid of this program, well, John, stop yeah, the program. Dr. John Marks and his colleagues go to America and start talking about this program and say, you know, look, this would work pretty well. You know, they're compassionate people. This would work pretty well anywhere. And the Americans... Um, 
massively pressure uh, the British government to stop. At the moment, the... the we're at the end of our program, and yeah. I, I just wanted to say that that's a really, really interesting article. And you can go to RT, uh, which is Russian TV. They they seem to have the most interesting stuff. Yeah. And uh, they really do. Um, but, uh, you know, I w that's the way it is. But I want to thank everybody who joined us tonight, and I want to thank you for joining us regularly, if you do. And, okay, um, so good night, folks. Yeah. Have a good night, and... Be peaceful. Yeah, I hope you will. I hope you do have a good And I'm going to play us out with... Something better than you played it then. No, in. October night. Oh. Well, Leo likes it. I like not, it. I'll try to get him to change it. <laughs>